Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. Tonight on The Readout... Definitely believe this is not over. I do. I think he just said the quiet part out loud. The he Vice President Harris refers to is, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, who wants the court to take away more rights. It's yet another example of how the cruelty is the point for Republicans, as the human suffering from the court's decision is already becoming apparent. Also tonight, the January 6th committee's new surprise, new evidence requiring a special hearing tomorrow. But first, over the weekend, thousands of people took to the streets to protest the Supreme Court's draconian decision, sweeping away the rights of millions of Americans. A new poll shows that a majority of Americans oppose the ruling. Republicans know it's extremely unpopular, so they're now attempting to make the truly ludicrous claim that they are the party that cares about women. Compassionate Conservatism 2.0. Here is conservative columnist Peggy Noonan. Look, you know what the Republican Party should do now? It should use this victory, if you see it that way, to change itself and become a party that helps women change its reputation, become a party that helps women and children, becomes responsible. Now, you know it's a bad idea when the entire panel cannot help but laugh out loud on live TV. Because that claim, Republicans could possibly support women right now, it, it falls apart immediately. After South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem said what, that she wants to help support mothers in her state, ABC's Martha Raddatz cited a study showing that the 14 states with the most restrictive abortion laws also have the worst maternal and child health outcomes, with South Dakota, of course, being one of those states. And here is how Noem responded. What do you mean when you say these mothers will never be alone? Well, I would say that the facts on the ground are that South Dakota is doing a lot to coordinate with nonprofits, with churches, and then also the state in a new way by launching this website and committing to in legislative session to support these mothers is incredibly powerful. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's right. All that the women in America need to feel supported by the government that now owns them is a website. And while they're hoping that they can get away with their fake support of women, they're also tripling down on their Roe victory. Noam also said that she would like to ban medication abortion, which will likely be the next big legal battle, with Attorney General Merrick Garland saying that the DOJ would fight any effort to restrict access to abortion pills. Garland also stressed that patients must be free to travel to seek care, as Republicans and anti-abortion groups have been brainstorming ways to criminalize traveling across state lines for abortion for months. But what Republicans really want is a nationwide abortion ban. And former Vice President Mike Pence is leading that charge. While Mitch McConnell said today, unlike what he said before, that, well, he didn't foresee a nationwide ban. Literally, no one believes that. And he said the opposite before. Also, a right wing group is currently pushing for model legislation that would go beyond punishing abortion providers, calling for the use of RICO laws against anyone with any involvement with someone accessing an abortion. 
such as offering telehealth appointments or mailing or transporting abortion pills across state lines or potentially even giving advice online about how to self-administer an abortion. And despite Republicans going out of their way to claim that this is not about punishing women, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation has already suggested that women who have abortions should be committed to mandatory psychiatric custody. Off to the psych ward they go. And once all of our abortion rights are taken away, birth control and same-sex marriage are next, as Justice Clarence Thomas was pretty clear about in his concurring opinion last week. So we should expect to hear many more Republican claims that they are really just here to support women. But voters need to listen to less of those meaningless platitudes and to more of what they're actually planning to do. With me now, Jason Johnson, professor of journalism and politics at Morgan State University and host of the Slate podcast, A Word with Jason Johnson. Melissa Murray, NYU law professor and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Anthea Butler, chair of the religious studies program, the religious studies department at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you all for being here. Jason, I found this really funny watching the various Republicans go on the various Sunday shows to say, oh, no, 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 we really love women. We will have a website for them. Um, meanwhile, in the real world, Politico talked to a bunch of political, a bunch of their strategists. And one of them said the following. This is not a conversation we want to have. This is John Thomas, a Republican strategist who works on House campaigns across the country. We want to have a conversation about the economy. We want to have a conversation about Joe Biden, about pretty much anything else besides Roe. This is a losing issue for Republicans. He's right, correct? Uh, it's a losing issue for Republicans. It's a wish winning issue for Democrats. If they actually use it, um, I, I can talk about this yeah. in a very, very practical way heading into the fall. You have an incoming school year this fall. You have people going off to college. You have students going back to high school. All of these things lead to increases in needs for prenatal care and health care and, and potentially abortions. Like we could see additional waves of this problem, almost like we've seen with COVID, where it becomes all the more apparent as we head into election day. The issue is whether or not, not just can the Democrats message on this, but can they convince people they'll do anything? I mean, look, the Republicans, it's not just they've been saying they're going to do this for 40 years. Once Texas passed a bounty law last year, that was the, that was the sands in the hourglass. That's when the Democrats should have done something and they haven't done anything. So you've got to go out and say, look, the Republicans are wrong about this and we have a set plan, Elizabeth Warren, uh, AOC. We have a set plan of what we can do going forward if you give us your votes. And that may be a way that they can, the Democrats can really capitalize on what is basically a human rights tragedy that just occurred with an illegitimate and unelected court. Right. I mean, you know, Melissa, the court seemed to know and not care that they were acting against the public will. Right. They are obviously religious zealots and they've decided this is their religious belief system and they're going to impose it. They just did another case today where they're like, oh, praying in school and making the, t the kids in the, in the classroom pray perfectly fine. Right. So they, we know where they're coming from. But, you know, to make it very clear, 57 percent of people who were polled on this issue believe that the decision was politically motivated and not motivated by the law of the land. Fifty six percent have said that they're concerned that the decision could also jeopardize the rights to contraception, same-sex marriage, or same-sex relationships. And half, 51%, say the decision will make them more likely to vote for a congressional candidate who would back a law that would restore the protections of Roe. So that, that is, in theory, as Jason said, good news for the Democrats. But my question is, I, I get a lot of people asking, yeah, but the Democrats have power now. Why aren't they doing anything? And to Jason's point, talk to me about sort of the parameters of potentially legally what the Justice Department could do and what the president could do, because there's been a lot of talk about whether or not an executive order could impact this, whether or not the Department of Justice can enforce the ruling that they came out and said, no, it's legal to have these drugs. You can't make them illegal in your state. You know, 
where does it, where, where do we stand in terms of what these states are able to do with bans and what the Biden administration could do and the DOJ could legally do? Well, there are two, actually, two questions embedded in your question, Joy. So one is, like, why does the Supreme Court insist on doing this, given that the majority of Americans disagree with this? And that's simply, if you watch the Real Housewives of Atlanta, this is a who gun check me boo moment. Who is going to check the Supreme Court? Not Congress, which is gridlocked. Congress could take steps to strip the court of its jurisdiction. Congress, in tandem with the president, could take steps to expand the court. There aren't the votes to do that right now because the Democratic majority in the Senate is so tight. So that then turns to what are these two branches going to do independently? Obviously, there could be a federal effort to codify Rose protections into statutory law, federal statute. That will not happen so long as there isn't a broader Democratic majority in the Senate. The president could take steps to pass an executive order to do this, either through his emergency powers. But that really falls on shaky grounds, which we saw in the Trump administration, which we saw earlier with those executive orders aimed at requiring certain workplaces to have vaccine and testing mandates under the OSHA statute. And I think the real question for this administration is if they push on this question of executive power, do they not only lose at the Supreme court eventually. But when they lose, they not only lose on this question of abortion, but the broader question of the administrative state and the government's ability to regulate Mm. through administrative agencies more broadly. So there's a lot at stake here. And I think a lot of this comes down to something has to be done, a symbolic grand gesture, if you will. But in the end, we can't really rely on government to save us. We have to get out there. We have to vote. And we have to recognize that the Republicans have been disciplined on this. They've been voting. They were losing. And they still came out when the court had yeah. David Souter and Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor, people who were wobbly on some of these core conservative issues. That didn't stop conservatives from coming out to vote. They knew they would eventually get what they wanted. And now they have. You're absolutely right. And thank you for saying that, because I think that is the the difference between voters on the right and voters on the left. Voters on the right never give up. They don't get tired. Decade after decade, they lost and lost and lost until they won. And they, in the process, Anthea, took over state houses, state senates and governorships so that they are positioned to now take ownership of the, about half the women in this country, about 48% of the women now live in red states. So you're talking about the fact that those state legislatures, at least according to the Supreme Court, the women in those states are their property and they can do whatever they want. And so now it's about trying to convince voters, you're going to need to switch those people out and vote in prosecutors who won't prosecute you and state reps and state senators who won't destroy you um, and governors who won't veto your rights. And so it's like it's a complicated argument, which is added to the religious argument. And you write a lot about religion and the far right wing of the church. Mike Pence, who kind of sees himself as sort of, you know, the, 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 uh, the head of that church on earth other than Trump. He's written this. He said or he said this. Now that Roe versus Wade has been consigned to the ash heap of history, a new arena in the cause of life has emerged, and it is incumbent on all who cherish the sanctity of life to resolve that we will take the defense of the unborn and support of women in crisis pregnancy centers to every state in America. Having been given this second chance for life, we must not rest and we will not relent until the sanctity of life is restored to the center of American life, blah, 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 blah. He's making it very clear. And Mitch McConnell, I don't care what he said today, has said in the past that if they get the Senate, they're going to have to please the far right base of the Republican Party by giving them the next thing they want, which is a contraceptive ban, bans on gay marriage. And they're going to want a national abortion ban, right? 
Exactly. I, I think what everybody needs to understand is two things right now. One is, I want to come back to the vote thing in a minute, but you're not going to be able to vote your way out of this. It's going to take a little bit more than voting to get out of this situation. That's number one. Number two is, this has been a long game. I said it on Twitter back when this first came announced back in May that, you know, this has been going on since the 1970s, even before the 1970s. This is a project and the project has been done lockstep with both Republicans and conservative Christians, both evangelicals and Catholics. And so you have to understand that you are meeting right now a juggernaut. Nobody believed that this could happen and it has happened. And so what Mike Pence is doing is just picking up the ball where the ball is going to eventually go anyway, which is we want to get this across the nation. We want to make sure that other laws get codified, which is what Alito said. And this is all on a religious basis. But let me make this clear. Religion is just a shield for the power grab. For many people who are in the pews, yes, they believe that they are pro-life and that you should be taking care of a child right from conception forward. But for the people who are moving this, who are political, they know that this is a motivational tool for their voters to come out. And what are Democrats going to motivate people with right now? You cannot do this. You cannot see change until the Democrats understand that they need to mobilize their voters just as much as Republicans mobilize their religious voters voters. Well, indeed. And and I mean, and mobilize them by making it very clear who you're facing. I, I want to play Mary Miller. Mary Miller, um, she's an Illinois um, representative. And this is how she celebrated the victory of Roe being overturned this week. President Trump, on behalf of all the MAGA patriots in America, I want to thank you for the historic Victory for white life in the Supreme Court yesterday. <laughs> there was one lady in the back who looked down like, what? Uh, I mean, but the, the, uh, and of course, her, her team tried to take it back. But I mean, this is the lady who said Hitler said some things that were right and had some good points and whose husband is a three percenter. She has a three percenter sticker on her truck that was parked in the parking lot at the time she said it. Kind of hard to, 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 you know, the reality is. Can Democrats make the case that we're dealing with religious extremism here in a coherent way so that voters understand exactly what they're facing? Well, they need to talk to people like me first. And um, that hasn't happened oh. as much as it could have. But I also think that, you know, part of this is of a set piece. It's not just about Roe v. Wade. It's about one six two. You had religious extremism at the insurrection at the Capitol. This is all together. And until people really understand that you have to talk about religion and politics together and not just think people are being stupid because they believe in this, but actually understanding that this is an organizational tool for them to destroy part of American democracy, destroy the rights of women and destroy the rights of people who need to have chances that they actually want to put their theocratic God over. When you understand that, yeah. then you understand how this needs to be. Jason, I mean, when the lady says it's a victory for white life, it feels like it's an easy target, but I'm not sure Democrats would even play that game. I'm not sure the Democrats would even hit her or hit the Republicans on that. Republicans would play that over and over and over again and never let Democrats forget it. 
Uh, look, look, Joe Biden saying, Jason. you know, they're going to put you back in chains and you ain't black ended up on TV for 48, you know, 48 weeks, months or whatever it is. But of course, the Democrats are going to be too weak to handle this. Look, here's here's the thing. Joy, I, I, I have one slight disagreement here. I don't think the Democrats need to convince the American people that this is a theocratic power grab. They need to convince their own party. Because they seem to be the only yeah. people who don't understand how dangerous this is. You've got all sorts of people, black, white, gay, straight, Muslim, Christian. You've got people of all kinds across America marching everywhere from the Capitol building to in the Target parking lot. Everybody out here living a real American life knows we're in danger. I don't think Chuck Schumer gets it. I don't think that Joe Manchin gets it. I don't think sometimes that Nancy Pelosi truly understands. And I definitely don't think Joe Biden does. They need to figure out how much danger they're in so they can actually serve the constituents to put them in office to solve some of these problems. You know what would help if the vice president of the United States uh, could go on and do an interview on CNN and just say, yeah, we think that they should get rid of the filibuster and do something to secure voting rights yeah. and uh, get rid of and, and codify Roe. Like that would have been the easy go. But, you know, right. the administration is is the administration. Uh, Jason Johnson, Melissa Murray, Anthea Butler up next on The Readout. Women are already suffering the consequences of the Supreme Court decision while facing enormous new threats to their privacy. Plus, today's big surprise from the January 6th committee. The Readout continues after this. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has already led to chaos and confusion for individuals seeking to obtain abortion care. In the aftermath of Friday's ruling, it is now banned or effectively banned in at least 11 states with trigger laws or pre-existing bans. On Friday, patients in many of the affected states learned of the change in real time. And staff were forced to turn away desperate patients already in the waiting room. Some patients cried and begged for help. The director of one clinic, the Alabama Women's Center in Huntsville, spoke to NBC News, Blaine Alexander. It was heartbreaking. The women, uh, the emotions that they were going through was just, it went down, it went down to my soul. It was everything from people that were upset, angry, people breaking down, crying, um, people in, in disbelief, people trying to focus um, and figure out, you know, started getting on the phone, figure out where you know, they can go from here. Um, it was um, just a raw, broad spectrum of, um, of emotions. 
Meanwhile, legal battles over laws in some states are ongoing. Today, judges temporarily blocked enforcement of trigger laws in Utah and Louisiana, allowing services to resume, at least for now. Also today, Texas abortion providers sued to block enforcement of that state's trigger ban, expected to take place take effect 30 days after the high court's ruling. A hearing is scheduled for tomorrow. Joining me now, Andrea Ferrino, Corporate Vice President of Whole Woman's Health. Um, and thank you, Ms. Ferrino. Thank you for being here. And I know that Whole Woman's Health has clinics around the country. Uh, talk to me about what we're hearing. I mean, just what I'm reading just in some states, Texas Tribune saying, you know, everything has stopped. Abortion care has completely ceased at Whole Women's Health. Your four, um, your company's four locations in Texas, in Austin, Fort Worth, McAllen, and McKinney. Um, there's just eight abortion clinics in Minnesota at all, and they're struggling to meet the state demand. And I know that Whole Woman operates there as well. Uh, tell me what's going on. Yes, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. It is incredibly devastating. Um, we, um, as soon as the decision was issued, uh, uh, Ken Paxton ratified uh, the decision by saying that abortion was illegal in Texas, uh, which uh, forced us to close our clinics. There are currently no abortion providers um, um, in Texas um, offering appointments. We are still open. Uh, we want to um, help our patients get the care they need. Um, we have been talking to our patients about where they can find um, services, helping them with logistical arrangements. Uh, we have a program called the Wayfinder Program uh, that basically uh, does exactly that, which is help patients get to where they need to go to get the services that the state has um, um, eradicated in their home in their home community. I mean, the the the, the long the drive to do that, you know, assuming somebody can get a ride at all. If you're in Texas, you have to drive 542 miles if there are no abortion clinics in the state. In Mississippi, it's 495 miles. In Louisiana, it's the most of all, 666 miles. If you're in Florida, you have to drive 575 miles. How are women supposed to get to a clinic that's out of state? It's incredible. It's incredibly difficult. And what we're going to see is that a small percentage of people will be able to make the travels necessary. The rest of the, the community is probably going to be forced into unwanted uh, pregnancies, forced into parenthood. It is very difficult to arrange travel, not only within the state, but outside of the state. Texas is is very vast. It's very difficult to, to travel. Um, and we also need to take in consideration there are a lot of um, immigration restrictions for people that are working and living in South Texas that have to consider uh, those limitations as well with internal immigration checkpoints that may keep them from being able to leave uh, their, their communities to get basic health care. You know, during the Trump administration, uh, when the administration's official policy was to separate uh, mothers from their children, sometimes even breastfeeding babies, we did hear a lot of reports, including from ACLU, uh, from the ACLU, of some predation, some predatory behavior toward those children and trying to pull them into adoption and put them up for adoption and maybe pull them into that system. Are you concerned that that might happen again, that if women are being forced en masse in a place like Texas or a place like Florida, Louisiana, into unwanted pregnancies, that they will be preyed upon by for-profit adoption agencies who want to take those children and give them to families who are claiming there is not a sufficient supply of infants, as Amy Coney Barrett said during the arguments in the Supreme Court? 
Uh, I am very concerned about all the consequences that the the impact of this law is going to um, is going to take place. We're talking about uh, um, not only forcing people into into parenthood, but and being preyed on, just like you explained. But also uh, with the uh, maternal health rates and maternal mortality rates in Texas that are already um, incredibly alarming. All of those things are a great concern for for our communities as well. Oh, and there's no doubt that women are going to die. Uh, maternal health uh, rates uh, are, are terrible in the United States for women of color, for black and brown women. Um, let's talk about another thing, because this is another thing that we're that we're concerned about. There are these crisis pregnancy centers that compete with um, entities like Whole Women's Health, but they're not providing abortion services. They're actually trying to get women to not do abortions. There have been... Um, stories and concerns that they may be pulling data from these women, taking information from them that could then be used to try to prosecute women in places like Texas. Uh, Do you have concerns about that? And have you heard any sort of horror stories along those lines? I I, I am concerned and I have, uh, we have been dealing with this, uh, uh, these issues for a long time. Um, uh, these crisis pregnancy centers basically uh, lie to people. They lie to patients. They misguide them. They uh, offer free services by people that are not necessarily trained or professional uh, healthcare providers. Uh, they lie to patients about uh, the length of their pregnancies um, and provide a mm-hmm. lot of misinformation on an ongoing basis to keep them from being able to access the services they are looking for and they need. And so I think that this constant, this, they're always finding new creative ways to lie to our, our patients um, and to cause harm. Let, let me ask you this. I mean, Whole Woman's Health, for, for those who, the name sounds familiar, Whole Woman's Health was actually a, the, the, the litigant in a case called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. And this was in 2016. It was actually one of the cases that reaffirmed Roe v. Wade, which has been reaffirmed over and over and over again since 1970, since it was first done in 1973. I just want to get just you as a provider and somebody who represents Whole Woman's Health. Just how did you feel um, at the moment that you heard that abortion had been overturned? Um, yes, and isn't it comp- ironic? Today is actually the anniversary of the whole woman's health is Hellerstead um, um, uh, victory. And um, it was completely devastating. Um, not surprising. Uh, I think that over the last 10 months, we have seen the many opportunities the Supreme Court had to intervene in Texas, and they didn't. And so there is a message there in their inaction. Um, I think then furthermore, with the league uh, opinion, we kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew that um, this was not going to be a good decision. And I think some of us being naive still hoped and still believed. Those of us that are immigrants that left our country to come to the United States for a better, brighter future did not ever expect this was going to happen here. And so to see to see it um uh, it was almost unbelievable. Uh, even though we were prepared, we have we have seen the the consequences. We've seen the actions. Um, uh, I know that I was still holding out for for hope, um, and was incredibly devastated yeah. and disappointed. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I think that it is. It was not surprising at all. It was definitely not surprising. But li- like yourself, I am the daughter of immigrants, and uh, the thought that the United States would be a country where there's less religious freedom and where there's religious rule 
um, minority religious rule at that, I think is going to be shocking to a lot of people around the world. We're going to see they're going to see America in a whole new light and not in a good way. Uh, Andrea Ferrino, thank you very much. Thank you for all you do. Um, and still ahead, Democratic leaders are shouting it from the rooftops. Women's reproductive rights are on the ballot this November. U.S. Senate candidate and former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley joins me next. We're back in a sec. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. The abortion death rattle sweeping through the South just got a lot louder and scarier. In most states in the region, abortion is either banned or soon to be illegal. But in some states like North Carolina, access to abortion remains. The battleground state is an outlier in the South for other reasons, too. It has a Democratic governor as well as Obamacare. It's one of the only states in the South without a draconian voter restriction law for now. The legislature there is controlled by Republicans, but there's not enough of them to override vetoes from the Democratic governor, which is why voting for those state level offices is that much more important. North Carolina is one of the last states in the South to protect a woman's right to an abortion. And that could all change come November when voters decide whether to remain this great outlier or to march toward Mississippi, where abortion will be illegal in just 10 days. Joining me now is Sherry Beasley, a former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice, Supreme Court Chief Justice, now the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in that state. Um, thank you for being here, Justice Beasley. And, you know, I, I, I think North Carolina is a really interesting cautionary tale, right, in a good way, in the sense that North Carolina was the last to go in terms of Republicans taking over the whole South and taking over state legislatures and governorships. But now Democrats have a foothold in terms of the governorship. So they've been able to beat back a lot of the worst things Republicans could do. For you, how important is it to communicate that to voters in other states? Because there are three other states where that's happened too: Kentucky, Louisiana, uh, same thing. They've got Obamacare. They've got health care because they've been able to hold on to some power. Is that communicated to the average voter in those states? You know, I, I would just and thank you, Joy. I am. I, I, um, it's good to be here. I, I, I know it is so important that we focus on these Senate races. It is so important that we have senators uh, in, in, in the Senate who are 
who are committed to fighting for uh, the people of North Carolina and 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 upholding the rule of law and the constitution for this country. And so I do think that people certainly in North Carolina appreciate the magnitude of this, of this election. And I certainly know that this court's uh, recent op- opinion uh, helped to highlight the magnitude. But, but I mean, and I know you're running for the United States Senate, and I'm going to get to that. I'm just going to pivot to that in one second. But I just want to go back because you were state Supreme Court justice. You won statewide already, which is why it's clear that you can win statewide because you were elected chief justice. People need to understand you were an elected chief justice in a state with an elected governor that is that, are, that is a Democrat. So people understand in North Carolina that they can elect the Democrats to statewide office. But do you think that the party has been good at explaining to people that down ballot from chief justice and governor, those state reps and state senators, the power they have to now literally decide what women can do with their bodies? Do you think the party's communicated that? You know, it is it is so important uh, that uh, all of us understand that we need to elect uh, people in the Senate, uh, in the State House, uh, in our local government, who are committed to protecting uh, a woman's right to uh, reproductive uh, decisions about her own health without government interference. Uh, and we know that politicians, uh, to include my opponent, Ted Budd, are trying to take this right away. The court's decision is certainly very disappointing, but these elections are important. And mm-hmm. I really do think that people in North Carolina understand the magnitude of all of these elections. Let's talk about the, your, your, your opponent. Uh, t- t- televisions in your state, North Carolina, they actually made a decision that was actually quite unusual to take down an attack ad against you from Ted Budd because the ad treated you the same way that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was treated by Republicans in her confirmation hearing, making some really salacious, disgusting attacks upon you um, and, and, and trying to use that same sort of groomer kind of thing. Do you're not so you're not running against like a regular old Republican. You're running against a full MAGA Republican. How ha- has that played out in terms of when voters are talking to you? Do you feel that that kind of extreme MAGAism is working in a state like North Carolina? You know, I am very thankful that many of the TV stations did take down the ad. Uh, the NRSC has vowed to spend millions of dollars against me uh, in this election to distort my judicial record. And I've been a judge for over 20 years. Uh, and and uh, they don't spend that kind of money unless they know that they can lose and that we can win. And so what we know is that people are so tired of this petty partisan politics. They want to know that the next senator is going to fight uh, for the issues that people care about. People need access to good quality health care, good paying jobs, a strong economy, and so much more. And they really are disinterested in this kind of uh, of misrepresentation and really distortion and 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 and, and demagoguery. It is just horrible. Let me ask you, if you um, are elected, would you support getting rid of the filibuster in order to codify Roe versus Wade as law and pass voting rights? You know, Joy, the first thing I I know we absolutely must do is to focus on these elections in November. It is imperative that we make sure that we have a Senate that will fight hard to support women's reproductive health. It's a constitutional right. You know, I've been a judge for over 20 years and the chief justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. And I know, as do so many of us, that Roe uh, determined the constitutional right uh, for, for a woman to make this own very 
a private right for her personal decisions without government interference. And so it's important that we have a Senate. Now, if we get to that place and after the election, uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it is important that we lift the filibuster so that we can move forward on legislation that the people of North Carolina and the majority of Americans uh, really want to have pushed through the Senate. Thank you for being specific, because I think that's the thing that is sort of frustrating to people about politics is that politicians are not specific and sometimes they overpromise and then underdeliver. But if you're saying that you would be willing to set aside the fil- to, to add to the votes who would set aside the filibuster to pass a codification of Roe and to pass voting rights, I think that's important for people to know. Uh, last thing is, um, do you communicate when you're talking to folks out there that if Republicans take over the United States Senate. If you are not elected and if Raphael Warnock is not reelected and Democrats don't get 52 to 54 votes, do you tell folks out there that are voting, by the way, they're going to pass a national abortion ban? You know, what I tell them is that, and, and, and especially now that we've seen this gut punch of an opinion from the United States Supreme Court, which this is the first time in our nation's history that a constitutional right has been taken away. What I tell them is that it's this horrible precedent and we have a whole lot at risk. Rights are at risk. Civil rights are at risk. And all of us need to feel a sense of urgency around this election. And we must be engaged in this election. And so many of these issues that impact the people of North Carolina are not partisan. The, the access to health care, needing to have um, uh, prescription drugs lower. These are not partisan issues. And people in North Carolina need somebody who's going to fight for them, stand for what's right and lead courageously in the Senate to represent the people of this great state. United States Senate candidate Sherry Beasley, who was the chief justice in that state, one of the most important races because it is a toss up. This is a, a, a woman who can actually win statewide. So please pay attention to this race, everybody. Thank you so much, uh, ma'am. Really appreciate you being here. And coming up next, the January 6th committee announces a surprise hearing for tomorrow. Stay with us. In a surprise announcement, the January 6th committee said today that it will hold a hearing tomorrow after previously saying that the next hearing would come in July. The committee says the 1 p.m. hearing will, quote, present recently obtained evidence and include new witness testimony. There's been no word on what that evidence is or who, in fact, will be testifying. But what we do know is that for the committee to turn around a hearing so quickly, the evidence and testimony must be highly compelling. Why else would the committee's nine members return from their districts rather than just wait until after the July 4 recess? Joining me now is Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian. And Hugo, is there any kind of hint at all what kind of witness this is? Is it a potentially someone from the Trump, from the administration, one of the attorneys, any kind of clues whatsoever? I think we have more information right now as to who it's not going to be, uh, as opposed to who it is going to be. And but you know you can do a sort of process of elimination a little bit. Um, so according to my sourcing and my reporting, uh, Mo Brooks, the congressman from Alabama, is not expected to testify before the the committee publicly tomorrow. Nor is Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. We don't think that former Vice President Pence is going to testify. And so that kind of narrows down the list of people that could make an appearance tomorrow. But the one thing we do know, right, based on the notice. It's an emergency hearing, as you said. They are convening this hearing, mm-hmm. members flying back uh, in a bit of an emergency, which suggests to me that they're really concerned about two things. First of all, they're concerned about potential leaks, about what could come in mm. the hearing or kind of it's like video footage or some sort of thing. The other thing they're worried about is potentially that if the name of the person who's testifying leaks, 
then Trump or his allies might get to that witness. They might kind of try and obstruct that testimony in some way, and they really want to protect against that. So I think that's as much information we can concretely say we have now. Now, you, you, you said that it, it, is, it is definitely not Mo Brooks, but there were other members of Congress um, who also reportedly at least raised the pardon question. We haven't seen a member of Congress testify yet, but I just want to play some of the members who allegedly did ask for pardons. Take a look. Mr. Gates reached out to me to ask if he could have a meeting with Mr. Meadows about receiving a presidential pardon. Did they all contact you? Not all of them, but several of them did. So you mentioned Mr. Gates, Mr. Brooks. Um, Mr. Biggs did. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. Any Mr. Perry asked for a pardon too. I'm sorry, I need to cut Mr. Perry, did he still talk to you directly? Yes, he did. Did uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene contact you? No, she didn't contact me about it. I heard that she had asked White House counsel office for a pardon from Mr. Philbin, but I didn't frequently communicate with Ms. Green. If you think about who could be scrambled quickly um, to potentially testify and who hasn't testified as yet, you do have multiple members of Congress, including the congressman who recommended Jeffrey Clark um, to become the new um, head of the Department of Justice. Is there a sense just from your reporting, at least sort of the way that the Hill is vibing, that, that the idea here could be that the reason for concern with security is that a member of Congress is somehow somehow implicated in the testimony tomorrow? I don't know if we can read that much into it right now. It's, it's. I think it's still very fluid. You know, I think the committee is trying to establish exactly what it wants to run through tomorrow. Um, you know, the fact that a member of Congress uh, is testifying is possible. I think the most likely person to have testified is probably going to have been Mo Brooks, but he he uh, he tells me tonight that he's not expected to testify tomorrow. I think the the vibe on the Hill is really looking towards the documentary film. Uh, that has emerged in recent days. You know, Alex Holder, the British, the British mm -hmm. filmmaker, that unprecedented access to Trump and his kids. And one thing that the committee is very focused on is a number of phone calls that took place before the election, the night of the first debate, because the filmmaker managed to capture on camera, and I can break some news here, um, Eric Trump on the phone with a person that is unidentified talking about how they should vote. And he specifically said, quote, hopefully you're voting in Florida as opposed to other, another state um, that you've mentioned. So it's not quite clear what's going on with that conversation, but the committee is very focused on this event that happened at the Trump International Hotel on the 29th of September. So we might see more of that tomorrow. Interesting. The other thing that broke today is that John Eastman's phone, another person that could be a very great interest here, that his phone was seized by federal agents. Do you have any updates on that? It was a really interesting uh, seizure, right? Because uh, Eastman in his uh, filing said it was FBI agents, six FBI agents came and seized his phone and um, they produced a warrant eventually and they made him unlock his phone. It's not exactly clear the circumstances surrounding that, but I think it's interesting that they served a warrant um, through the auspices of the DOJ Office of Inspector General. That's really interesting and it points to more of an internal probe because we know the DOJ has been investigating uh, Trump's corruption of the, of, of the Justice Department around um, trying to overturn the 2020 election. So it may suggest an investigation into that. It may be criminal. It may not be criminal. Eastman may be a target. He may be a fact witness. It's not clear. But the fact that it comes from the OIG is very interesting.
Very interesting indeed. Hugo Lowell, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And up next, Pride celebrations this year took place under a big dark cloud cast by the conservative Supreme Court majority's ruling on women's reproductive rights and LGBTQ freedoms. Well, are they next? We'll be back after this. Over the weekend, New York City held one of the largest Pride Month celebrations in the country. Not surprisingly, many participants channeled outrage over the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade, a decision that imperils freedoms not just for women, but also for the LGBTQ community. Let's take a look. In America, you're free, you're free, and it's like, no, we take one step forward and two steps back. Everybody, please scream for Planned Parenthood! Like, I'm trans. Um, when am I no longer going to be able to exist in this country as a fully, you know, realized person, or am I going to have to hide back in the closet? And that is tonight's readout. Be sure to join us tomorrow night on the re- on the readout for the latest on the surprise January 6th hearing that was just announced today, followed at 8 p.m. Eastern by our January 6th recap show. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.